British intelligence, Jamaican restaurants, runaway cage fighters, and the South Sydney Rabbitohs. This week on Thereabouts Outspoken. G'day, hi, howdy, hello, how's it going? Welcome to the program and boy oh boy, it is another fantastic episode. My name is Angus Morton. I am sitting here, halfway across the country from my co-host, Isaac Carson. Isaac, in today's episode, there is a lot of reminiscing about things we've done and things we were meant to do, uh, but were unable to for some reason. Tell me, is there anything you wish you'd done but haven't for one reason or another? Yeah, Gus. I mean, there's a whole list of things uh, that I wish I've done and haven't yet. And the list keeps getting longer, uh, especially, uh, you know, I'm locked down with the COVID. Definitely have come up with some plans. But I think hearing from Scott really made me realize that so many unexpected and great things can happen uh, by just being open and jumping at opportunities that come up along the way, um, which is sort of what happens uh, with the first thereabouts. You're totally right. I find um, both the very best things in my life uh, and also the very worst have come about as a result of, you know, just being open to things. Before we jump into it, I should also um, note uh, we, we owe everybody an apology um, we had intended, and last week we said we would release the first film in our Sometime Thereafter series. However, under the current circumstances, um, timelines have been shifted with, uh, with our distributors, and we will have word on, on when that is dropping. Um, I dare not say a date because it'll only be delayed. Um, so, you know, it will be soon, very soon, but, um, you know, when that is, is, is not 100% clear just yet. Let's talk about today's episode. Today, we're going all the way back uh, to where it all began, the trip to Uluru. Uh, we sat down with Scott Mitchell, the director of the very first Thereabouts, to talk the lunch that landed him on the way to Uluru, recognizing the biggest story as it emerges, the challenge of asking your best mates some hard questions, as well as his filmmaking process. Uh, we finish things off with a discussion about what makes sports so great and what we hope will continue to make it great once it resumes. I guess we should just go for it. <laughs> G'day, Scott. How are you doing, buddy? Mate, very well. Good to see you in these very strange times. It's been a while. It has been. Tell me, uh, where are you right now? So I'm in Sydney um, and we're all working from home at the moment. We, uh, we sort of have similar restrictions to a lot of the US, um, not sort of as bad as New York or, or Spain or London, fortunately, um, but we're all at home working from home. But look, I'm safe and well and I hope you are and I hope anyone who's listening is safe and well too. So today, I thought it would be a good idea to get back on, as you said, we're in quite strange times and I've been thinking about, you know, the first Thereabouts film and I thought it would be great to get you on and like have a talk about the making of that film, however many years later, six years later. Um, But first, like maybe, how about you tell us a little bit about how you ended up 
well, how did you end up coming onto the to, to onto the thereabouts project? Like, what were you? What was your job? What were you doing? And and how did we kind of how did that relationship start? Sure. So I I am a TV producer or a journalist. I've kind of done so many different um, sides of that coin. I'm not quite sure which I'm on, but I I um, was a journalist at the ABC. Um, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, kind of like the BBC in the UK or um, imagine for anyone in America, PBS, if it was sort of the biggest news channel in the country, which it obviously isn't. Um, <laughs> and so I, I made sort of this weird youth current affairs show that, um, that you, were, um, you were working in the same production company as and got a job there. And then I produced some other TV shows um, you know, now I'm still in that game. I'm still I'm at the ABC now as um, the digital lead of Audio Current Affairs, which is all of the network's podcasting and radio programs that are kind of current affairs. But back then, I had just come back from being living in Beirut, where I was trying to be a foreign correspondent at the age of about like 24 or 25, which was probably <laughs> a bad idea to try and cover the Syrian civil war when I was like 25 and, um, and had the most amazing time in a lot of ways and learned so much about the world, but, but was not ready to do that. And I'd come back, I'd had a couple of jobs. And then you basically said at a pub one day, the, your brother was coming home to Australia. Um, you were thinking of trying to record it somehow, or at least get some photos that you could kind of pit, use to pitch later and do something with, and you, I think you weren't quite sure what then, but you had an idea of doing sort of something around adventure sport mm. stuff. Um, and you thought it would be a good opportunity. And I think you had someone lined up to come along and take photos and do video. And then they dropped out and I was in between jobs at the time. And I was like, well, I, I could come. And then um, very quickly found myself with a camera, a, you know, I think it just a, a Canon 5D pretty basic camera um, coming along with you two, basically. Is that about how you remember it? I was just going to say, like, that's you pretty much... My memory is even more succinct than that. I remember going to lunch at, like, at like a Jamaican restaurant or something, like some sort of a, like, exactly above a pub in Surrey Hills. And it was you, Kirk Docker, who, for the audience listening... Um, if you listen to last week's show, uh, Mitch Docker, his older brother, Kirk, um, is, I guess, kind of how Scott and I met. He's a, um, a, a TV producer in, in Sydney where I used to live. And we were all at lunch together and we were talking about going, like I was telling telling you guys about, oh, we're about to go and do a trip. And I feel like it was like in four days time or yeah, like three days time. It was, it, was really, like, it was really close to you. Yeah, it was like... like we were leaving on Sunday and we were having lunch on Friday and uh, and you were just like, there's no good reason for me not to, so therefore I'm compelled to do it. And so like, we just, you just came, like we just, we just left and we weren't even, I don't even think at that point, we were like, let's make a documentary or anything. Yeah, I think from memory is, I, we definitely didn't set out to make a documentary and I didn't even set out, I think, to really work in a way I sort of was like oh you're going to Uluru I've never been to Uluru so many Australians it's the most incredible place in the world and so Australians have never been there and I was like well when when in my life am I going to get to drive across 
my country and see Uluru. And I just kind of sort of came based off that because I just came off a contract, was waiting for another TV contract to come and went on it. And if we both of us worked in television at the time and if we planned to make a documentary, I think it's clear if anyone wants to look it up for the first time, watch the film (laughs) after you um, listen to this podcast, um, it's clear that we did not go out to shoot a film because we would have brought a lot more equipment and we would have shot a lot more. Um, and it was only a couple of days in to the journey and I, I'm shooting some stills, some video for like I think a little five-minute sizzle reel um, and it just became sort of apparent that there was something going on that was worth investing more effort into and more time into and then suddenly we start. I actually start shooting everything, really, or trying to document as much as we can, doing interviews after every day's ride, shooting as much of the ride as we could. And suddenly it shifted from like, well, I'm just going to be in the car while these guys ride and we'll get to Uluru to actually kind of working and making it. Yeah, because I don't don't remember... I certainly wasn't conscious of like that point when it went from being a five-minute sizzle reel to, like, a full film. To be honest, I think I probably hid from you in a, in a, bit, in a way that I came to... I think on the second day of the ride, I probably thought mm. that I wanted to try and shoot it as a documentary, and I think I probably didn't say that. I think about two days in or three days into the trip, I said something to you like, I'm going to really shoot this, and I'm going yeah. re- to get interviews with you both and you were just so buggered because you're barely holding on um in those first few days in particular like your fitness wasn't up so you were so buggered that i think you probably only absorbed about half of that information but i know that in the back of my head Mm -hmm. during the shoot i was like i think there's something here and i want to actually have a have a proper crack at making a film here and to to name that i mean basically for anyone who hasn't seen it or or even, you know, it's pretty, in a lot of ways, this is subtext if you have seen it, is, you know, I didn't know Lachlan at all when Mm. I started that. I'd never met Lachlan before. And we were friends, but I didn't know anything about your life in cycling. And you didn't really talk about it a lot. And so it was, it took a few days for suddenly, as I'm shooting it and interviewing you, I suddenly realise, first of all, I'll, wow, Lachlan actually doesn't really like what he's doing. He doesn't like cycling. And you're, even though you have fallen out of it and you actually hate it, you're trying to make him love it again. That's interesting. Um, And you're not really saying that to each other, but that's the subtext of what's going on. I'm like, that's a pretty amazing thing to try and get your brother to fall back in love with something that you yourself hate. Um, Yeah. And then as I started to interview about that and try and pull that out, you know, a few, um, a few days later, I sort of realised that I'm like, why does he hate it so much? Why did he hate cycling so much? Why did he leave cycling? And I sort of figure out even before we got it on camera, I think I was sort of getting hints of it, is that you had had this struggle with eating disorder with... Um, with your body, with all this stuff that's going on. And just as as somebody who's a journalist and a filmmaker, you're like, well, this is suddenly a story. 
this isn't just it, uh, it's, of course, you know, if you go anywhere to do with your friends doing something challenging, of course, there's going to be emotions. Mm. And that's all really nice. And that's great. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who's going on a trip, fantastic. But when you start to connect it to, you know, some social issues or, you know, the economy of sport and how that plays, suddenly that's, that's a story. And I suddenly got, you know, it was both intimidating because when you realize that you have a story, you go, oh, fuck. I'm going to have to ask my friends some really difficult questions. And this is going to be really, you know, you're both riding really hard. You do not have time for this. And, you know, there were times when, you know, we'd, we'd drive in that car for a few hours and not, no one would say a word because mm. who wants to sit down for a 45-minute interview when you're fucked? Who wants to, you know, why are we sh shooting all this stuff? Like, what's the point of all this? And, you know, I'm getting frustrated at whatever but and you have to confront those things but ultimately i'm i'm really glad that we ended up going no it's worth the difficulty of confronting this to make something and i think we did that what do you think it was about riding our bikes from port macquarie to uluru that like brought this story out well, I rewatched the film for the first time in a long time on the weekend to kind of get ready for this interview. Um, and there's like, there's so many things in that film that even at the time we would have done differently. You know, I think, that, I think there's all kinds of, you know, the sound isn't perfect. The pacing <laughs> yeah. isn't great. There's all kinds of things. But, but I think one of the, the things I'm proudest of in that film is the section from Mari, which is this town for people who don't know, in really central desert Australia, mm. um, in a lot of ways, near Lake Eyre and near Cooper Pedy, some of the most ice. The the there's one police officer for that entire area, and it's the size of Belgium. Mm. So that is the kind of area we're talking about. Um, and that section from Mari to Cooper Pedy, um, I what that sort of seven minute section I think stands up as something really special and worth all of the mistakes of the rest of the film just that part is incredible and i stand really i'm proud of that i think what brought it out there and why that section so amazing is i mean first of all we you know australia is an incredible country and there's nowhere else like it um and being i mean i the, I mean, first of all, difficulty. When you two are doing those that level of effort, difficulty mm. is going to bring out emotion. When you're going through something that physical, it brings out emotion. Then you're exploring the place that we're all from and um, our own country, but you're seeing, I mean, it's not in the film, which is a big flaw of it, but, you know, you're, you're connecting with the, in, you know, during the trip we're connecting with the sort of indigenous people of mm. this country whose land it is, you know, the, the country is, is their land and was never ceded. And we're connecting with that in a way that none of us had before. Um, I think that was hugely emotional for a lot of us. Um, that time being alone, you know, you don't in your life get much time, you know, to have, what was it, 12 days or something mm. with four people. Um, you get to know each other really well and intimately. Um, and also, I think you and Lachlan probably hadn't spent that long together in what, almost maybe eight years or something. So you've got two brothers who haven't spent 
that much time together in a long time. And so a lot is being brought up. Um, What did you find? What were the things that you found? So for me, riding my bike had always been about one thing. And that was getting faster, like, and beating other people, like competition, right? So, so everything that I did around the bike was towards, towards racing and competition. It was almost like I was riding a bike because that was just my outlet of competition, right? It wasn't like I had an attachment with the bicycle. I just happened to be good at it. And that was the way that I could exercise my like competitiveness. So the first thing I think was like, and I remember this so well now, and it seems strange to me now that I didn't recognize, like I never thought differently about the bike, but like when Lachlan suggested that we ride like halfway across the country, um, you know, for fun, I was sort of like, what? Like the only people that I sort of had ever seen do something like that were like, you know, middle-aged German cyclo tourists, right? Like, (laughs) and, and so I sort of was like, but why on earth, why would you ever want to do that? Like what, what are we getting out of it? The first thing for me was like on that, um, it was on the second, I think it was on the second day or the th- into Gunnedah where I was like, I overheated. It was like 180 kilometers. It was really hot. And, um, and I just like, I was just so cooked. That for me was the moment where I was like, wait, we're not, there's no reason to be doing this. Um, so why are we doing it? And there was, I don't know, there was something in that point, like at that point in time, I was like, oh, wait, I'm just doing this for me and for Lockie and like, we're doing this together. I'm allowed to like, I don't know. It was like one of those things where you, you have a shared experience together. It was like the first time I'd had a shared experience and that be the point of it. And so from that, like that, that moment, my whole attitude changed towards the way we were riding. My entire worldview really started to shift. And all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, like, you can learn a bunch from experience, you know, like, and that kind of opened me up. Like when we went to the Mari pub, right? Like we were like pouring our own beers and like the guy's like, let's go and shoot this gun. And also something that's not in the film, by the way, is that that guy was like a former cage fighter from Port Augusta. And the other guy that worked at the pub was, um, was like former British air force intelligence. And these two guys couldn't be more different, but they just were running the pub and we were the only people in it. So these two guys who are complete lunatics and so different were just running yeah. that pub and we're just basically like, all right, guys, we'll, you know, just pour your own beers and uh, we'll sort it all out later. And I think barely charged us for half of what we drank yeah. and ate and just wanted to hang out with us and play. It was, you know, that if no one's been out there, huge recommendation because there really are, it feels like there are no rules in a lot of ways or people are making up rules and, and norms as, as they go. Right. And so there's also some, I think we were also experiencing like a crazy amount of freedom, you know, at, at one point, you know, you lock and Chris Farco, the, the trainer mechanic driver, um, <laughs> of like skateboarding on a tiny skateboard out the back of the, holding onto the back of the car. Like you can't do that in in Australia. Just to clarify, that's not yeah. road rules. And so, like you know, you could, we could really do anything in a lot of ways. You know, I, half the film was shot with me standing on the on top of the handbrake, um, 
center console of the car with half my body through the sunroof and I'm holding the camera through the sunroof and we're doing, you know, whatever it is, you know, 100K an hour maybe to catch up to you, go around the side and film a kind of tracking shot of you. Um, and obviously I'm not wearing a seatbelt. I don't have a harness. <laughs> I don't have a helmet. Um, and I think we even had, you know, we had police go by us when we were doing that kind of stuff. And they're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Because out in the middle of nowhere, you know, they, they can't be bothered dealing with that stuff. They don't care. And so there was a lot of freedom we went through. But just on that point as well about how it changed your, you know, view of the bike and of, of I think, sport. You know, I think that's something else. If I were to list the things I'm proud of, one is that we confronted those themes and actually brought mm. a story out and in it, and did it, you know, setting aside some friendship, I think, to be like, you know, I asked you some really difficult questions. You gave me really honest answers. I'm proud of that. Yeah, I would agree. I think like there's something about the on like the honesty of that story I think that all of a sudden like to to your point right like you said it was like all of a sudden like the freedom of it and I don't even really know how to I don't even really know how that was how that how that's conveyed like but it is um and I think that that that's what's gone on certainly I've noticed like or like you know you have people come and talk about that that film and like what it did for them and I think what happened to us on that trip like as then a result, like, you know, learning by shared experience or whatever, other people were able to then have that same freeing kind of experience and the sport was opened up to them. Um, let's move on to, well, what, do we have any other, do we have anything else that we want to cover on that, on that first, about that first trip? I think one of my regrets to this day is that um, I wish I found some money. You were, like, you were so... You were so incredible at a sharing all that stuff with me, but then putting me in a position to, you know, I may got to make a feature documentary at like 25 or whatever. <laughs> and that's basically down to you. You edited that film, you planned that trip, you took it through. So, you know, I'm super glad that that happened. I wish I found a way to stump up some of my cash and get it sound mixed. So anyone who, who watches right, it, yeah. watch and out for that sound it. mixing. <laughs> Anyone who wants to mix it and grade it. I actually, do you know what I did? I, we should talk about, um, so the music for that film was written by um, our friend Monty and um, of the Delta Rigs. Yeah, look him up on Spotify. And he was a good friend of ours and they wrote all the music um, for that film. Anyway, I lost all of those hard drives when I moved from... Australia to the US I don't know like what I, I didn't know what I'd done with them I couldn't find them like two months ago I found them I had two dead I had two or three dead hard drives and I'd been like looking for them because I really wanted to find the music I couldn't find the music anywhere and like countless people have pestered me over the years like actually pestered like people just sending you multiple messages like yo where can I get that music? Like, why won't you tell me where it is? And and um, anyway, I found I found these three hard drives, and on a on a very snowy, gloomy day here in Colorado, I drove them to a, a nondescript tech center building on the outskirts of Denver, and I went up to the second floor, and I buzzed on a door, and a tall, 
very burly Ukrainian man <laughs> answers the door and he's in this dark little office. It's like piled high with hard drives. And I gave him, gave him my hard drives and he's like, I will see what I can do. And then he like, no word for th- like three weeks. And then I get this call and he's like, your hard drives are ready. Anyway, I got the drives back and there's all the, all the original music plus all the edit files, all the Final Cut, Final Cut 6 or 7 or whatever we're cutting on at the time. So it's all there. Uh, I found them, I, and and so I've got the music back. And I put if you if you want, dude, we should do a remaster. We should do a grade on it because I went again when I was watching it the other day because I haven't watched it for ages. It's really hard for me to go back and watch. And so yeah, going back, I was like, this could do with a little polish, with a quick grade, and like a, a bit of a sound mix. But but that's also what makes it charming. I think even at the time we knew that though. I think at the time no, we, we definitely knew, knew that we were like we don't quite have enough to make all of this sit together and be great but we know we've got this like 10 minutes in here that are so good that if we can make if we can kind of uh, you know slap some tape around the rest and get it there that that kind of 10 minutes is going to be so good it's worth doing a film like i still got kind of goosebumps on Mm. that final shot when you come around the corner and there's uluru sitting there and I watched it on Sunday night and I got goosebumps totally. watching yeah. that. And that's a bit self-indulgent to say that you get goosebumps watching your own film, but I, it still means it a, a lot shot. and I, yeah. think it, I think it works. So for all the things that don't quite work, which I think at the time we were like, fuck, I wish we had this. I wish we had but- more footage here or we could pace this out more. But when it hits its stride. In my mind too, I feel like making thereabouts in the way that we did we were like embracing at least i feel like there was like this level of embracing like all of the imperfections and because like i remember going like i remember i'd come off of a country town rescue um which is a long form documentary series um for the abc which we'd shot over 18 months and i'd sort of started on that as as like an intern and then kind of gone through and and, and was shooting stuff and 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 interviewing by towards the end um and so i'd kind of like come up that that's what taught me how to to um shoot and make you know make make film and um but during that process i was so i became so disheartened that like all of the stuff i found really interesting was like the camera might not have been fully in focus or like you know it was because someone it's real life right like the sound guy might have been you know had the boom over the wrong person and so you only caught like part of the the um the sentence and and because of that you couldn't use it like you couldn't use it was like this sort of standard of things that you couldn't use and then also too like i remember like everything had to be so voiceover heavy and like really explain everything that was going on and i feel like when we were making like when we were doing um doing thereabouts like that like that scene in the car where Lockie tells a story where you and Lockie you tell a story about the gun and then Lockie tells a story about kissing the like 200 year old woman in portugal and there was no there's no cutaways there like the cutaway we use like the same shot twice to cover that like, to get around like a jump cut and it's just like but it was fine it, it works like someone like someone just yesterday was talking to me about that scene and they're like they're like you would that 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 scene would be instantly cut right from well, well never you wouldn't even think to put it in in anything else but like but then when you watch it you're like in this film and in this context like it works really well and i think that's what we were doing there was like an element of that of like 
we'd made all of this polished television or we'd been involved in the making of polished television and this was our opportunity to like make it how we wanted to, to do it and so there was like an element of embracing all of these like raw shitty moments to like because that was like how it felt I guess and like how like that was our sort of version of how we would make a film and in that same way like I definitely like with the like the there like the stuff that we've done since then like I've taken that style and and continued it through kind of everything we've done I guess at times it's gotten more cinematic and certainly the sound has gotten a little bit better not much though but tell me what do you love about sport what draws you to sports stories you are a sporting fan in a big way yeah um i i love sport i mean thereabouts is sort of the only time i've gotten to do it professionally um in a lot of ways but i love sport i think i tell people who aren't into sport um who don't get it um which are you know quite a few people and i'm like it's the greatest human drama um going it's like if you if you don't love sport imagine sort of the best reality tv show you possibly can but it's been going for like 200 years in a lot of in some sports cases and you know we we sports an incredible if you're a tv producer or something how can you not look at sport and go every sport is an arbitrary set of rules get this ball in the net hit this um hit this ball over the over the rope um, ride up this mountain and then we get people from the age of you know eight years old to perfect that thing and then you get to a moment you get to watch that kid in a final in um, you know in a championship game have to do that skill to change their lives that human drama is you can't beat that and that sport to me is it's those stories and picking your heroes and your villains um, that that's what I love about sport is watching some kid from a tiny town in, in Colombia or Ecuador, um, you know, as you get to watch that kid grow, you get to watch him then finally at the age of 30 win that race or win mm. that game and change his life. And then because sport just keeps going, <laughs> maybe if you keep, you know, you, you're rewarded by following it and then that kid becomes a coach and then he ends up becoming a villain and is a tyrant and you watch these characters change and grow and you know I, i'm i know that a lot of the guests you have on are kind of sports people and coaches mm. and they're sort of very interested in performance and um you know their business and that kind of thing but as a fan that's what i love about sport okay so coming out of this situation Right, this current you know sports been cancelled. Right, that 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 human drama is on pause right now. What what like what's what happens to sport? What does it look like? You know, what do you and and what, or what do you hope it looks like? Do you want it to resume as it was? It's a fascinating question. I think I think sports. I'm really interested to see how sports people react. I think you know at the beginning of this, there were a lot of sports people going. I just want to get out there. I just, I just want to play the game I love. Right. I just want to race. I just want to do it. Let's get back out there. Let's get back to normal. And I hope that as this has gone on and become more serious and, and we're seeing, you know, all these lives being lost and everything, that, and we realize that playing sport right now is actually dangerous. And mm. it's not necessarily about that we want to go out and compete. 
it's actually kind of dangerous to go out and compete for a lot of people, depending on where you live. And I hope that sports people, when this is over, kind of look and, you know, sports people, genuine, like generally speaking, sports people see themselves as self-made. They think that they are responsible for their success or failure. They're the only person who has control of their own destiny. And coming out of this, I think we have to say that solutions to this and all problems have to be collective. And what's the point of, if you feel like you can go out and race right now and that you're safe, maybe you are. But if the whole sport comes back right now, maybe it's the kid from a third world country on his first contract who gets sick and maybe it destroys his lungs and maybe his career's over. So you're not, you can't just think about yourself as a sports person. You have to think collectively. And I hope sports people come out of this going, all right, it's our health and our um, livelihood and our income that really is the thing that gets bit at the end of a crisis, whether that's a pandemic or a global recession or whatever, it's our health and our bodies on the line and let's take a collective approach to this and look after each other and make sure that, you know, veterans and, you know, young athletes and all those people who don't necessarily get paid the biggest money, don't necessarily get looked after the most are being looked after because, um, you know, sport has to make sure that it's looking after and even the mechanics, the staff, um, you know, the, the masseuses, the whatever, you know, sport is a very individualistic uh, industry. And I think as an industry, hopefully it becomes a bit more collective and people start looking after each other a bit better out of this. Because uh, I'm sure when this is over and we take stock, there's going to be a lot of stories of young athletes and people, you know, losing a lot um, as a result of this. And it's going to take a while for those stories to come out, but I've got no doubt there's going to be stories of, of you know, pretty vulnerable people who ended up losing a lot out of these seasons being cancelled. And I hope we look after them when this is done. As to what the, the product looks like on screens, it's really interesting. You know, I wonder whether, you know, I think you look at what the NBA is going to be coming back, I think, probably pretty soon in, you know, maybe six weeks, eight weeks. They haven't announced anything, but that's the sense that's coming. And I think they're going to do all kinds of things to try and make it a more cinematic experience because um, there's no fans. So what do you got to, you got to try and make it entertaining somehow. So I think there's kind of exciting creative potential for how do you shoot sport differently, races differently, um, and that's all going to be really exciting, but I, I hope it comes out with some kind of welfare for the players at the heart of it. Um, you got any ideas on what you want to see out the other side of this? No, I, I, I would, I would, um, I would have to say I like line up very, very, very much in the same way that you are. I think I would like to see like, first of all, athletes recognize their responsibility within society, even like to extend what you said even further, right? Um, the idea, for example, of, the idea of the Tour de France going ahead right now, um, like that's you know like like there's like five thousand people involved in 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 that production right, and that that traveling around a, you know a country like is 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 obviously like in a in a time of pandemic extremely risky. Um, so, but like, but but beyond that, like, so that's obviously the idea is like who who are we impacting by going out and and performing in our sport. 
and and that's that's one thing. And then the other thing too is like people watch sports stars, and if they see them out riding or they see them out doing something, then they're like, oh well, that's okay. So I'll go out and do it. So it's only it's even an, it's it's even beyond um, just just them directly doing something. Uh, and then so then recognizing that power, and then going, well, how do we wield this in when, when all this pandemic's gone and we're back to normal life and there's no such thing as social distancing, these athletes still have that power. Like it might not have, they might not have recognized it before or it might not have, have been as overtly, um, like the, the impact of that as overt as what it is right now. Um, and so then recognizing that and then by extension of that going, okay, well, what role do we now play in society that's beyond us just, just playing our game? Um, and so I would like to I would like to see that become um, for athletes like that become more of a of a thing. Certainly in and 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 there are athletes that do do this, and I think that there's definitely needs there's. It, I mean, this is an interesting point, right? Like you could argue, and I've spoken with with um, the head like the head of uh, of the sports governance um, here at Colorado University, right? And and so the case of like Colin Kaepernick, you could argue what he stood for in, in, in the bravery and what he did was really remarkable. But the outcome, like, did he actually advance that issue? And you could argue that, like, you know, him v. Trump, like, Trump would could arguably have come out in front in that situation and, and he could have alienated, and alienated himself in a way that has been detrimental to, more detrimental to his cause than, than not. Yeah, and I very much hesitate to weigh into a, um, a debate with a professor of sports ethics because I'm hardly mm. that. But I, you know, my view on the Kaepernick thing is that, you know, I just wonder what, what would we be saying about, you know, the 68 Olympics and the, the Black Power salute? I'm sure right. in, the, in the couple of years after that, people would have been saying, oh, well, it was very distasteful and, um, you know, it, it alienated a lot of people, you know, a lot of a lot of white folks sitting on their couches felt really that was quite aggressive, you know, um, but ultimately they won that, uh, you know, that debate, that cultural moment. Right. And that's now memorialized and, and rightly celebrated. And I wonder whether, you know, e for everyone who, um, you know, Trump can say that he, he did whip up a lot of support around the Kaepernick thing. Fox News obviously covered that a lot and, mm. and used it to their advantage. But I hope that in the long term that's viewed as, you know, how many, how many Americans were talking about police violence before he started kneeling, Precisely. you know, and, and how many more people are speaking today. And I just wonder whether it's a slightly short-term view to go. Well, that was a big win for for Trump. Um, I think it's uh, look. It's still obviously open to debate, and history is going to be the the judge. But I think that athletes shouldn't be scared off taking you know some pretty controversial positions if they believe in them. And I you know I don't even know how controversial Kaepernick's position is really. It seems pretty pretty, pretty open and shut to me. Pretty straightforward. Right. Um, and, you know, I um, I think athlete, you know, sport, when people say, you know, sport's becoming so politicized today, well, mm. sport has been politicized for a long, long time. I'd argue that, you know, sport is a, is a much safe, like safer place without a lot of politicization today. I mean, if, if the most controversial thing that happens is that 
LeBron James and some NBA players wear I can't breathe t-shirts, uh, you know, wear a t-shirt and that's, that's right. kind of, you know, people are criticizing them and sponsors are freaking out and looking to pull out like that. Isn't that risky? Um, it's, you know, that's some really, you know, basic solidarity that they're showing and that's fantastic. But, you know, athletes of, you know, 70 years ago were doing, um, you know, far more risky things, you know, running, running as a black man and winning a gold medal in front of Hitler at the, at the games in Germany is a, right. is a really political act, um, you know, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and like high risk and high risk. So, um, there's, I think sport has an incredible and should be, you know, celebrated history of, of politicization. And, and when people kind of go like, Oh, I just, you know, I remember back in the day before sport was political, I just, I'm going, no, I think, I think you were maybe just too young to realize it was political. You know, when you were watching the sports stars you loved, I promise you there was politics going on. Um, you know, there were, there were people from countries that were, you know, when you see, say, like Algerians playing for the French national team and, and you know, talking about seeing the Nigerian a anthem and feeling more Algerian than French, you know, that was incredibly political. That was in the 90s. You know, you're, you're saying yeah, right. you feel more you know Zidane said I'm Algerian first a man from Marseille second and a Frenchman third and they hated him for it you know there was there were times when he, I think they'd even won the World Cup but the French fans were booing them for, for talking about uh you know uh, Algerian um you know independence and nationalism this stuff has been going a long time and anyway you know I hope maybe if there's some good to come out of an awful, awful situation, it's that athletes recognize that they have, uh, you know, they, they can play a big role in how society reshapes itself after this. Sport's really important. Um, everyone wants sport back right now. Everyone wants to be able to go out and, and train in sport and go down to their local club and have a kick and have a whatever. And so sport's going to be a part of remaking society when this is all over um and hopefully athletes like take an active role and go i want to be part of um how sport comes back and i want to have some agency in that and whether that's supporting just supporting my local club um where i grew up um, and making sure those kids can play sport safely or whether that's taking some big giant stand on you know a socially issue or the economics of how we're going to get out of this like you know, yeah, I hope they play a role. Favorite sporting match and event of all time? <laughs> uh, my, um, I was thinking about this. I think my favorite sporting match I've ever seen was probably South Sydney versus uh, the Canterbury Bulldogs in the 2014 Rugby League Grand Final. Rugby League, for people who don't know, is like a combination of rugby um, that you'd probably know in the in the US and, and basically NFL. It's like it's a battering ram against a wall of a sport. It's just men running at each other with no pads, no helmets. Um, it's the closest team sport gets to combat. And um, it's an incredible game. Um, Sam Burgess, uh, player for South Sydney, which is a very, um, has a lot of ties to the Aboriginal community, but Sam's from England and he broke his cheek in the first five minutes of that game, broke his cheekbone. 
like clean break and he played the entire rest of the game with a broken cheekbone, didn't have a minute off the field um, on the substitutes bench. Um, and him crying at the end and Russell Crowe, the actor, owns that team. And when they won the game, Russell came down onto the onto the ground and Sam is just crying into Russell Crowe's arms, uh, which is one of the most just bizarre, amazing, beautiful moments in sport I can remember. Um, and, and Greg Inglis is an Aboriginal player in Australia, Indigenous player, who basically went to that club because they have a connection to the Indigenous community. He scores the last try of that game. I'm pretty sure it's the last try. And he runs the whole length of the field and he's crying before he's scored it. He's running and he knows they he can't realizes catch him. And he realises they're going to win and he starts crying mid-sprint. And that is absolutely astonishing. So that is one of my favourite sports matches of all time. Um, I would, If even one American listening to this pulls that up on YouTube and watches that game, I'll be so happy. That would be hilarious. Well, dude, I feel like we've chinwagged for long enough um, and we should, uh, we, should, we should probably wrap it up there. But, dude, it was really good to get you on and it was really great to reminisce about... Um, you know about about that film that kind of certainly for me at least completely changed my life and uh and also too to hear to hear your uh your thoughts on uh on the role of sport mate i um i very much hope we can do it again i uh, absolutely i'd like to be your kind of um you know it was really obvious if you ever watched like david letterman it was obvious when the guest had cancelled because he had like regis fieldman on or someone oh, from really? like, it was yeah, he just always had somebody on speed dial. Or like if you listen to the Bill Simmons podcast, he's got his fr old friend Joe House. So right. I'd love to be your, um, you know, whenever a guest cancels, just get your I old mate Scott Mitchell on and I'll, f I'll plug a gap. Well, that's all we're going to give it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Thereabouts Outspoken podcast. It's been a gas. Uh, once again, I'd like to apologize for the film that was meant to launch this week. Um, we will, you know, get to you as soon as we know any more on when that will be happening. Until then, though, maybe go back and watch a couple of the old ones. Go back and, you know, get in touch with uh, Scott Mitchell's thereabouts. Um, or you could just, you know, go back and have a listen to uh, some of the previous editions of the podcast. I'll leave that decision up to you. Appreciate everybody subscribing and following along and sending questions and recommendations or just you know emails to us howdy at thereabouts.co is our email address and our instagram is here or thereabouts um, so yeah thanks everybody for listening i'm isaac carson still reporting from the pacific northwest and from the rocky mountain range it's angus morton take it easy people